You just heard the Speaker of the House accuse the Attorney General of a crime. What's the remedy? Good question. Let's see if we can get some answers today, shall we? Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. That's why. I got the feeling that something ain't right. No, it ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yep. Yes, I'm stuck in the middle. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA. Also in California, in Red Bluff and Redding on KFOI, Round Mountains KKRN, and in Eureka on KGOE. Up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, and Eugene's KEPW. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU. In Columbus, Ohio on WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP. In Grand Rapids on WPRR, New Orleans, WHIV, Gallup, New Mexico's KNIZ. In Concord, New Hampshire on WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ. In Seattle on KODX, Goldendale, Washington's KVGD, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM 950, KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe every day on the internets on the Progressive Voices channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR, Revolution 99, Workforce Rising, Deprogrammed Radio, and Detour Talk, all fine affiliates. Please support all of them who carry the world-famous broadcast at least five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me from bradblog.com. All right, coming up, hopefully we will get some answers today. I'm really looking forward to speaking uh, to my guest today, who spent years as the general counsel for the U.S. House Judiciary Committee during pretty much all of the darkest years of the George W. Bush administration. Remember those years, Desi Doyen? <laughs> I wish I could forget them. Yes. Well, and we thought they were dark. We thought at the time those years were historically unprecedented in uh, the w, W's administration's attempts to undermine the rule of law and exercise extraordinary executive powers to avoid pretty much all accountability from the U.S. Congress. But boy, were we naive. Boy, uh, that George W. Bush was a piker compared to this guy we now got in the Oval Office. Uh, And just, you know, how far the next Republican president has gone in that regard. So as the nation's top law enforcement official, Attorney General William Barr, continues to run interference for this president and the uh, at least 10 incidents of blatant obstruction of justice found in the redacted version of the Mueller report, As that's happening and as Barr refuses to answer lawful subpoenas from Congress to turn over the full report and its underlying evidence, and as Barr himself refused to show up at a House Judiciary Committee hearing on Thursday because the committee decided to allow staff counsel from both parties to question 
the nation's top cop about his apparent cover-up of uh, Mueller's conclusions? Well, with all of that going on, I've got a lot of questions for the former general counsel of the House Judiciary Committee who uh, may think he has escaped into private life and private law only to have jerks like me pull him back in. <laughs> At least to help us uh, try to understand what the hell is going on and what will happen if Bill Barr and the rest of the administration continue to blatantly defy the actual rule of law and subpoenas from Congress to avoid uh, constitutionally mandated oversight by the co-equal legislative branch. Ted Kalo will join us shortly for all of that and much more. But first, let's uh, let's briefly kick off today with some good news and some bad news regarding uh, voting next year in two separate key swing states, Ohio and Florida. Let's start with the good news. And that would be, well, as it turns out, in Ohio, believe it or not. A panel of federal judges has ruled on Friday that Ohio's congressional districts were, in fact, unconstitutionally drawn by the Republicans for their political advantage. And it has ordered a new map for the 2020 elections. And no, you have not heard this story previously. I know it sounds like you may have. You did hear an almost identical story coming out of Michigan just last week, where a three-judge panel there also ruled that the state's GOP legislature had unconstitutionally drawn state legislative and congressional maps that were unlawful partisan gerrymanders. Uh, in that case, they also ordered new maps for the state uh, before 2020. And in that case, they even ordered some state Senate elections previously scheduled for 2022 to be held on newly drawn maps next year instead. That was Michigan. If today's ruling in Ohio, which is very similar, if it stands, it will be a big victory for the Democrats who are hoping to redraw Boundaries and hoping that those new boundaries will not only help them pick up House seats next year, but also help energize voters in Ohio, in the Buckeye State, to boost turnout in what has long been a battleground state and help them defeat Donald Trump next year. Republicans, of course, have said they would appeal today's uh, ruling by these uh, three judges, two of them Democrats, one of them a Republican appointee, they all decided in favor of the Democrats here. The panel unanimously declared the current map to be a unco an unconstitutional partisan gerrymander, saying the GOP-controlled Ohio legislature put the Democrats at a disadvantage by packing lots of them into just four districts and scattering the rest across the remaining 12. The judges wrote in a 300-page ruling, quote, Democratic candidates must run a significantly longer distance to get to the same finish line. The Republicans currently hold a 12 to 4 advantage in Ohio's congressional delegation under the current map, which went into effect for the 2012 elections following the uh, 2010 decennial census. Yes, it has taken almost 10 years of unlawful, unfair, fixed maps 
to even get to this point of a court-mandated correction here, and that's only if the court's mandate actually holds. The U.S. Supreme Court is already considering two other partisan gerrymandering cases that could lead to a major decision on how far politicians can can go in in drawing these uh, these districts for themselves, choosing their own voters rather than voters choosing them, as it is said. Now, while racial gerrymandering has already been found by the Supremes to be unconstitutional, they have held their fire on cases of partisan gerrymandering. With the court punting last year when it seemed Republican Anthony Kennedy was prepared to join with the court's liberals in a five to four ruling to end the practice. But now Justice Kennedy has been replaced by the hard right Brett Kavanaugh. However, according to those in the courtroom during uh, oral arguments a month or two ago, it seemed possible that Kavanaugh might actually do the right thing here and vote with the court's liberals. As it turns out, Kavanaugh himself lives in the uh, Maryland district in question, where it was Democrats who uh, partisan gerrymandered there. That's where Kavanaugh actually lives. And so maybe he's suddenly concerned about this. We will see. That ruling is expected next month uh, in June and may affect cases of GOP gerrymandering found to be unconstitutional by lower courts already now in North Carolina, Wisconsin, Michigan, Ohio. In Pennsylvania, the state Supreme Court stepped in and ordered new maps that were used in last year's 2018 midterms. But we'll see uh, if we finally get a ruling on this uh, at the federal level. And we'll see if it's uh, as good news as today's decision in Ohio appears to be, at least for Democrats. Some Democrats have said that after years of lopsided congressional races, newly competitive districts might generate voter excitement in a state that Trump won in 2016, but that Barack Obama carried twice in a row prior to that. And so all of this that we're uh, hearing out of Ohio today could influence the White House race next year. Ohio Democratic Party Chair David Pepper said it could very well change the turnout for the presidential race. It's a bad day for Republicans in Washington, he said. It's a bad day for Donald Trump. The Republican Party state chairwoman, Jane Timken, called the challenge to the map a, quote, partisan political ploy. Well, she would know from partisan political ploys, I think. The lawsuit uh, challenging the map called it, quote, one of the most egregious gerrymanders in recent history, one that has reliably done its job by allowing the GOP to capture 75 percent of Ohio's congressional seats by winning only just a little bit more than half of the state's votes. There's your good news in Ohio for the less good news. The bad news, in fact, we turn to Florida again. Last November, Florida voters approved a groundbreaking ballot measure that amended the state constitution to restore voting rights for up to one and a half million people with felony convictions. But the Republican-led legislature on Friday voted to impose a series of restrictions that could prevent tens of thousands of them from ever reaching the ballot box in a move that undermines both the spirit and the word, frankly, of uh, what voters had intended 
Thousands of people with criminal histories will be required to fully pay back fines and fees to the courts before they are allowed to vote. These new limits would require potential new voters to settle what may be tens of thousands of dollars in financial obligations to the courts, effectively pricing some people out of the ballot box entirely. Patrick Penn who spent 15 years in prison for uh, robbery and burglary, said, uh, quote, basically, they're telling you, if you have money, you can vote. If you don't have money, you can't. Sounds right. Uh, And sounds like a poll tax to me. I suspect that uh, this uh, new law, if it's signed by the governor, as uh, it looks like he's going to, I suspect it will be challenged on similar grounds. The uh, House voted 67 to 42 along party lines on Friday in Florida to endorse these uh, new restrictions. And now the legislation goes to Republican Governor Ron DeSantis, uh, who was elected last year in a very close election. He had called on the legislature to set additional standards for registering ex-felons to vote. The House passed the bill on Friday. Uh, despite an outcry from Democrats who say forcing felons who have completed their prison sentences and their probation and their parole to also now have to pay court fees and fines, that that goes against the constitutional amendment that voters passed overwhelmingly in November. Yeah, it seems to go against the plain language of the constitutional amendment that voters passed. So I don't see how this could stand up to constitutional muster. But of course, Florida is going Florida's Republican legislature is going to try and then they're going to wait it out in the courts, which will mean it'll take that much longer for those people to regain. Well, it seems like yes and no. Because right now they are signing up. Uh, Former felons are allowed to sign up around the state. Now, unless someone can get a court order to stop that, if this uh, legislation gets held up in court, I would like to think that they will continue the process. Because right now there are people that if this goes into place, there are people who have regained their right to vote. They're going to lose that right to vote. Right. It'll be taken away from them again. This uh, the amendment that restored voting rights for felons uh, other than murderers and sex offenders was approved last November by almost 65 percent of the vote. It received more votes in its favor than any single candidate on the ballot last year. But the language that you referenced, Des, said that felons must complete their sentences, including all parole and probation. But what Republicans did was they have essentially voted to interpret that to include restitution, court costs, fines and fees that were imposed by a judge saying that, oh, that's part of the sentence. Democrats disagree and say that's not what they intended when uh, the amendment was approved. But this is how much Florida Republicans really, really do not want to allow those who have served their time to allow them back into civil society, even though many have already voted, as I said, in local elections since being allowed to register as of January. So those people are going to have their voting rights taken away again. Unless, of course, they have happen to have enough money to pay up to be allowed to vote in the state of Florida. You got money, you can vote. I mean, it seems insane, but this is what the Republicans are now doing. Punishing They're, them for being poor. Poor and... 
of a certain color. Did I mention that uh, Florida's century-old lifetime restriction on former felons voting that had been in place until last November, that that had excluded some 20 percent of the black population in Florida? That's one out of every five African-American voters who were not allowed to vote. So, uh, yeah, I wonder why Republicans are so concerned about it, uh, that they're that they're actually what they're doing is actually voting against what their own voters uh, wanted, because this landmark amendment last year was, as I said, passed by 65 percent of voters. That's a lot of Republicans who voted in favor of that. And all of this comes, by the way, as Democrats, for their part, in the 2020 presidential race are debating whether all prisoners, uh, including those who are still serving time, uh, whether they should have their rights to vote restored even while in jail, which, frankly, I believe they should. But we will have much more on all of this in the coming days, <laughs> I suspect, uh, because I've got a guest waiting for me to talk about another story that is likely to have a huge impact on 2020, one way or another, if Attorney General William Barr does not comply with the House Judiciary Committee Chair Jerry Nadler's newest attempt to reach an agreement allowing Congress to see the redacted portions of Special Counsel Robert Mueller's report by Monday, Nadler is threatening to begin contempt proceedings. Seems like they have uh, been uh, threatening this for some time. I'm wondering why they are not getting it underway already. Barr has already failed to meet the deadline for Wednesday to turn over those documents. This was a lawful congressional subpoena. He was also a no-show at a U.S. House Judiciary Committee hearing on Thursday where he had previously agreed to appear to discuss fallout from the redacted Mueller report and the revelation that Mueller himself was very unhappy with Barr's characterization of that report. Let's take a quick break here, and we will be joined by the longtime former general counsel of the U.S. House Judici Judiciary Committee, who knows a whole lot about all of this stuff and where it may or may not go from here. Ted Kahlo joins us next on the broadcast with hopefully a lot of answers to a lot of questions that I have. I'm Brad Friedman. Stay with us. The Bradcast and the Green News Report are 100% independent, 100% listener supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Please help us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations around the nation. Please drop by bradblog.com donate. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. The problem is it's unclear who the law is in this point, uh, in this case. Who is actually, is it the nation's top cop, Attorney General William Barr? Is it the, uh, the folks on the House Judiciary Committee? Uh, everyone seems to be fighting the law. The law may win, but I don't know who I don't know who decides the laws at this point. All right. 
Let's reset the table here with some Kentucky Fried Chicken, or in this case, some Tennessee Fried Chicken, in the U.S. House of Representatives Judiciary Committee. Chicken Bar should have shown up today and answered questions. He was afraid of Barry Burke. He was afraid of Norm Eisen. A t- attorney general who is picked for his legal acumen and his abilities would not be fearful of any other attorneys questioning him for 30 minutes. This man was picked to be Roy Cohn and to be Donald Trump's fixer. The Black Sox look clean compared to this team. It's a sad day in America. That was Tennessee's Democratic Congressman Steve Cohen, a member of the Judiciary Committee, holding a toy chicken after Thursday's House Judiciary Committee hearing at which Donald Trump's new attorney general and, yes, fixer, William Barr, refused to show up to testify under oath because the committee decided to allow staff counsel from both the majority and minority to ask questions of the attorney general in addition to questions from members of the committee. All of that, as House Speaker Nancy Pelosi on Thursday accused the AG of committing a crime by lying to Congress in the weeks following the completion of Special Counsel Robert Mueller's report, when he indicated to members of both chambers, both the House and the Senate, under oath that he had no idea if Mueller or his team disagreed with the conclusions that Barr had offered in his four-page summary of Mueller's report a month before a redacted version was actually released to the public. A letter from Mueller to Barr recently released reveals that, yes, Mueller was quite unhappy with Barr's characterization, and that Barr knew it when he testified to the contrary before Congress. What is deadly serious about it is the Attorney General of the United States of America was not telling the truth to the Congress of the United States. That's a crime. He lied to Congress. He lied to Congress. If anybody else did that, it would be considered a crime. Uh, Nobody is above the law, not the President of the United States and not the Attorney General. That was Nancy Pelosi at a news conference on Thursday. At least half a dozen or more 2020 Democratic presidential candidates have now called on Trump's AG to resign in the wake of all of this. And that was before Barr refused to show up to that uh, House Judiciary Committee hearing Thursday morning that he had previously agreed voluntarily to show up for just days after he had missed a deadline to turn over the full Mueller report to Congress with all underlying evidence as the DOJ had been subpoenaed by the House Judiciary Committee to do by Wednesday of this past week. And then on Friday, House Judiciary Committee Jerry Nadler sent what's being described as a final counteroffer to Attorney General Barr to obtain the full version of the special counsel's report, along with an ultimatum. If the Justice Department does not comply, the panel will initiate contempt proceedings. In his letter, Nadler writes the quote, the committee is prepared to make every realistic effort to reach an accommodation with the department. But if the department persists in its baseless refusal to comply with a validly issued subpoena, the committee will move to contempt proceedings and seek further legal recourse. 
What that further legal recourse might be, that remains unclear. Nadler, who issued a subpoena for Mueller's unredacted report and the underlying evidence back on April 19, gave the Department of Justice a new deadline now of Monday to respond, which is very thoughtful of him. Nadler also asked that DOJ work directly with Congress to seek a court order to release the grand jury material in Mueller's report, which is normally protected from public release uh, or even released to Congress, writing that there is precedent for the courts to authorize the release of that material, for example, during the Watergate investigation under Nixon and the Whitewater Independent Counsel investigation under Bill Clinton. Barr, however suggested in his congressional testimony uh, before the Senate on Wednesday that he has absolutely no interest in seeking the release of those grand jury materials. At the White House on Friday, Press Secretary Sarah Huckabee Sanders scoffed Nadler's new deadline, saying House Democrats, quote, look ridiculous and silly. And who knows what silly and ridiculous looks like better than Sanders. And all of that comes after Barr advanced a remarkable theory during his Senate testimony on Wednesday that a sitting uh, president may legally and constitutionally shut down any criminal investigation into his own potentially criminal behavior if the president himself believes that he is being falsely accused in that investigation. Yes, the nation's uh, top law enforcement officer actually made that explicit argument during his sworn testimony in the Senate. Well, that's a lot to unpack as the nation moves uh, closer to what seems an inevitable constitutional crisis or two or three. Here to help us unpack it somehow is someone I'm very happy to welcome back to the show. Ted Kahlo is a 14-year veteran of the U.S. House Judiciary Committee, serving as its general counsel for the last 10 years of his service there. He left that post, smart him, in 2011 to become COO of LMG, Inc., which is a public affairs firm. He also now serves as the executive director of the Artists' Rights Alliance, an artist-run nonprofit advocating for fair treatment of music creators. Ted Kahlo, thanks for uh, joining us on the broadcast, my friend. Thanks for having me, Brad. It, it has been a long time, and uh, frankly, what you are doing now sounds way more fun. Uh, do, do, you, do you miss being in the middle of, of these sorts of constitutional nightmares in Congress, which I think you know very well about from your service during the George W. Bush era? I, I guess I have a weird definition of fun. Um, no, this this uh being in the middle of this stuff sounds like a lot of fun really it's very interesting oh um, man uh well we'll uh i'm happy to trade jobs with you anytime ted so <laughs> i've i got a lot of questions about all of this stuff i'm hoping you can help help us cl- try to at least begin to clear up first is it unusual or out of bounds for um, staff counsel, in addition to actual members of Congress, to question a witness in a hearing like this? Uh, this, of course, just after um, that's the reason Barr said he wouldn't talk to the House Judiciary. And it comes, I noticed, just months after Senate Republicans hired an outside attorney to, cre- to uh, question Trump's then Supreme Court nominee, now Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh. Uh, it's not unusual at all. Um, you, I mean, you can even look at the House Judiciary Committee 
uh, during one of the many investigations of uh, Hillary Clinton's emails. Uh, behind closed doors, staff questioned Andy McCabe, mm-hmm. Jim Comey, and the AG Loretta Lynch. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not uncommon historically. Uh, happened um, in public hearings during Iran Contra. It happened during the Clinton impeachment. It, of course, happened during the Watergate inquiry. And uh, it, it's a um, uh, it's something that has happened over many years, very frequently. It's not uncommon at all. Does a witness ever have any say in this? In other words, is this something that is usually worked out in advance with the approval of a witness who's showing up voluntarily, as I think Bill Barr was supposed to in this uh, in this case on Thursday at the House Judiciary? Absolutely not. Uh, it, no more than you would have say about how a to a judge about how he wants to run a, a, a court case. Uh, one of Mr. Barr's prosecutors going into a federal criminal court wouldn't uh, pretend to tell a judge how he should run his proceedings. Congress is an independent investigatory body, and they have uh, the, they have complete say over what rules they use in, in hearings. The witness doesn't have any say over those rules. Uh, Nadler now is uh, giving one more chance for the DOJ to turn over. He says one more chance for them to turn over the full Mueller report uh, before suggesting that he would vote to hold, uh, I guess, the DOJ. I don't know if it's the DOJ or Barr himself in contempt for not turning it over. And now, as I understand, that's a separate process from subpoenaing the AG himself to appear before the panel. Uh, which, if he doesn't, then I guess Barr himself would uh, could be held in contempt. Am I understanding that correctly? So, uh, for, for refusing to testify, Barr could be held in contempt um, for his own refusal to testify as mm-hmm. Attorney General. With regard to turning over the full Mueller report, it's whoever is the custodian of the record, who is who has control over the record. Mm-hmm. In this case, it's Barr. Uh, and Barr could be held in contempt for his failure to turn over the record. So what's the holdup here? I mean, he's already missed the deadline for turning over that report, uh, along with, you know, refusing to testify and and all of this, by the way, after the White House has instructed staffers and former staffers and executive agencies to not answer lawful uh, congressional subpoenas for anything. Uh, what's the holdup? Why did they not vote, for example, on Thursday when Barr didn't show up to to hold this guy in contempt? Any idea? Uh, yeah, I have a I have a pretty good idea. Um, a key: what happens after you hold someone in contempt? Uh, what can Congress do about it? those? That's a question that you're going to get to, I imagine. Yes, shortly. I am. Yeah, but but what before we get there? One of those possibilities is that you're going to have to go into federal court and file a civil suit to um, essentially have the court to command the official to comply with the subpoena. And we did that with respect to the uh, Bush administration Mm -hmm. and the testimony of Karl Rove and Harriet Myers when I was with the committee. One thing that the courts look at very carefully, because they're not fond of and don't want to be in the full-time job of adjudicating disputes between the executive and legislative branches Mm -hmm. is have these guys really tried to work this out. So what you're seeing going on uh, publicly is kind of Chairman Nadler 
bending over backwards to show that he tried his hardest to reach an accommodation with the executive branch Mm -hmm. with an eye towards future litigation. Uh, In our case, the fact that we repeatedly made many permutations of offers for how those officials could testify uh, bore heavily on the court's uh, decision in our favor Mm -hmm. that we were far more reasonable and they were incredibly recalcitrant and unreasonable. And that kind of um, background made the court believe that it was time for it to step in and settle it and indeed settle it in our favor. So while it's frustrating as hell yes. to watch this play out and want, you know, it, it's so obvious what's going on in plain sight, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, as a matter of uh, the the goal of getting the information, Congress has to proceed cautiously because of its limited options for enforcing subpoenas, which uh, I'm sure we're going to discuss. Yeah, well, let's talk about that. Um, if, uh, as expected, neither Barr nor DOJ complies here and the, and the House votes to hold Barr in contempt, uh, then what? How is that enforced? Uh, who would enforce it? As I understand it, AP reports that uh, while a contempt vote would make a strong statement, it's unlikely to force the DOJ to hand over the uh, report. A vote of the full House on contempt would send a criminal referral to the U.S. attorney for the District of Columbia, a Justice Department official who is then likely to defend the administration's interest. Well, who defends the people's interest as uh, represented by Congress in such a case if that contempt citation goes before a judge? Well, I mean, uh, the first thing that you'd say about that is I guess Barr's just not being as transparent as the law allows, like he said he would be in his confirmation hearing. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the second thing that you'd say is that the Congress's options are are limited. Um, one option is to have the House authorize uh, the committee to file a civil suit. The civil suit would ask the federal courts to issue a uh, injunction, essentially commanding the administration to comply with the subpoena. Uh, another option is what's known as inherent contempt authority, mm-hmm. and that's the notion that because the uh, House has um, uh, constitutional oversight authority, it also has the constitutional authority to enforce its own subpoenas. And historically, that authority was used maybe the last time a century ago. Uh, the House sergeant at arms would place somebody under arrest and detain them until they complied with the subpoena. The, so I think you've laid it out. The U.S. attorney is not going to, he's going to decline to prosecute the criminal case, even though the statute says the U.S. attorney shall uh, prosecute the case. Mm-hmm. And, uh, Democratic and Republican administrations have declined to do so. And then the House has two options, as I see them in the current set of rules, which are to uh, file a civil suit or exercise this inherent contempt authority. All right, let's look at those two options. Uh, I'm presuming that a civil suit would be the one they would try first before this inherent contempt business and ordering the sergeant at arms to actually go out and arrest the attorney general. Uh, We'll get to that in a second. But so a a civil suit, would that be the more likely uh, next step in such a case? Under the current rules, that would be the most likely 
case. I, they would go to federal court uh-huh. and file a suit and ask the federal court to command the attorney general to comply with the subpoenas. And that is w- what the most likely outcome is he- here. And I kind of think, all right, well, the uh, federal court and what army is going to to force uh, any of these folks, to force the attorney general to comply? I mean, w- what then when he also refuses to comply there? Is that when we get into a matter of uh, financial penalties for not complying? So I, I think then you're in contempt of the federal courts and there are very serious criminal and civil penalties that are enforceable. Uh, the real issue with the uh, civil suit is that it takes so damn long. Um, how long does it take? What are we talking about? I've heard that this is going to be a long court battle. How long are we talking about? So, you know, looking at recent cases, these it, it can take as long as two years. Here, I think there's a, a avenue for the House to tell the courts to hurry up. And what what I think they should argue to the court is that we're dealing with an attack on our democracy and the last ele- in the 2016 presidential election. Mm-hmm. That attack was ongoing in the 2018 election, and it's ongoing for the 2020 election. The House is actively looking at what legislative solutions it can offer to help thwart that attack on our democracy. This is an emergency. It's, a, it's an exigent circumstance. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that the courts need to view this uh, in that way and accelerate the process by which parties file their suits, replies are are, are uh, submitted, and oral arguments proceed. I think they need to go to court and tell them to hurry it up. Hurry up. I think they also need to look at um, how they can augment the existing rules that they have to perhaps allow the House in its um, uh, inherent authorities to enforce its own subpoenas for the House to impose fines and, uh, uh, and impose other penalties on people who are, compl- who are not complying with subpoenas. Um, I think they ought to look very carefully at the appropriations process about cutting off funding for offices that aren't complying with congressional subpoenas. I think they need to pinch the executive branch very hard on these issues and try and um, speed up the clock to get these subpoenas complied with. Well, you raise a whole bunch of <laughs> new questions for me then. A, expedited um, uh, motions here on an emergency basis, even if they uh, a court complied with that or agreed with that, then a procedure that might normally take two years would then take how long under an expedited basis? Are we talking about weeks, months? Yeah, I, I think a court could resolve this in a matter of two to three months. I mean, the question of whether Barr has to show up, mm-hmm. if that's the question we're dealing with, that, that question was settled in the Myers case, that executive branch officials, in that case it was the close advisors of the president, which was an even more difficult question uh-huh. about whether they have to respond to congressional subpoenas, that a cabinet officer has to show up to the Committee of Oversight, that's not even a close call. So uh, I, I think you could uh, resolve that question, that um, case relatively quickly. Yeah. I think on the you know the Mueller report questions, I, I think the court could figure out a way of uh, looking at the different categories of redactions and figuring out what uh, which ones are reasonable and what materials could be turned over. 
I could see a strong argument for court saying that Congress might not need to have unfettered access to information about an ongoing matter, which I read that redaction to be the Mm -hmm. Roger Stone WikiLeaks Mm -hmm. case. Uh, But um, on some of the other uh, things, for example, embarrassment to third parties, uh, it seems, look, we all know who the third parties are here, right? I mean, we know that that Donald Trump Jr. was the subject of the investigation. We know Jared Kushner mm-hmm. was a uh, was was part of this investigation. I, I think the court's unlikely to find that the disclosure of their names would cause them embarrassment, as though they were capable of embarrassment. <laughs> but uh, and then on the grand jury uh, information, you know, all of the policy arguments that would lead a court to keep grand jury information secret. Yeah. To me, are outweighed by the public interest in disclosure, and courts have found that in the past, grand jury information is passed on to things like uh, bar disciplinary committees looking at whether lawyers should keep their licenses. That it wouldn't be passed on to the United States Congress in a case like this is a real stretch. I, you you referred a few times to a precedent that, you know, with the Harriet Myers case, with the uh, previous I mentioned, you know, the, the grand jury material turned over in the, the Clinton and uh, Nixon impeachments and so forth. But you had Donald Trump tweeting out the other day that, you know, if Democrats uh, try to impeach me, I will go to the Supreme Court. Now, of course, there is no uh, constitutional uh, place for the Supreme Court, as far as I know, in in those sorts of impeachment proceedings other than the chief justice presiding over a trial in the Senate. But is there... We talk about these precedents as if, oh, we know all of this stuff. We know what's going to happen when these cases go before the the, the courts and, uh, you know, Trump's ridiculous suits uh, against Deutsche Bank and Capital One to keep them from turning over these lawfully subpoenaed documents. Uh, that's going to be tossed out. We think we know all of that. But, Ted, this guy and these Republicans now have a stolen majority on the U.S. Supreme Court. Does that change the equations of what we think is uh, a precedent here? Do you have any reason to believe they're going to, you know, that they won't take it all the way up to the Supreme Court and that the Supreme Court won't uh, find in favor of the, the Trump regime here? Well, there are kind of two. The, the question is, what are, what's the case we're talking about? Is the case what Trump's tweet said that if the if the Democrats try and impeach me, I'm going to call up the Supreme Court and tell them to stop it. Right. That ain't going to happen. I mean, right. the, the, it would be a very interesting ruling for Supreme Court justices to get around the congressional language that the I mean, the constitutional language that the Congress has the sole power of impeachment. Well, I, I mean, just on in general. Other, on, on, on these on, other yeah. cases, yeah. on these other cases, I, I think you're right. We have a federal judiciary that's been packed by people who uh, who start with the political result they want and then work the legal reasoning backwards. Uh, and I think it's, it's a valid fear that the courts won't follow what long-standing precedent. Mm-hmm. Uh, I continue to believe that the courts will, uh, that ultimately there's a majority on the Supreme Court that believes in the separation of powers, 
that won't do whatever Trump says, and on matters such as should a uh, cabinet-level official show up to testify before a committee, and is the committee entitled to information that it gets as a matter of, uh, routinely, uh, they will decide that in favor of the committee. If it's heading up to the Supreme Court, the problem is we're it's taken so much time, mm-hmm. and we're well past the next presidential election, which really shows the weakness in enforcing congressional subpoenas and is a very unsatisfying result. Which brings us to the other point you were making, the other option, not going the civil route in court, but in what's called inherent contempt. And we talked a lot about this during the, the Bush years. I remember uh, years ago, your old boss, then House Judiciary Chair John Conyers, Uh, had told me that there was a jail in the Capitol and that the sergeant of arms could be directed to arrest someone and uh, for contempt and held in that jail for contempt. Is that jail still there, Ted Kahlo? And is such a thing even a a possibility? Has it ever been done? So there never was a jail there. Uh, there was something that was referred to as uh, it was a historical misunderstanding that there was something that was referred to as a congressional jail. Uh-huh. It wasn't for this purpose. It was over by where the Supreme Court building is now. What has been done in the past uh, when uh, the inherent contempt authority has been used is they've essentially put up the detainee in a nearby hotel room. Okay. Uh, so let's forget about the jail. That's how it would work, uh, and I think the the, uh, the really um, kind of difficult question here with respect to the attorney general as opposed to a private citizen is: Do we really think it's a, a realistic, a good thing, uh, resolvable if the sergeant at arms is doing? combat with the FBI detail that's protecting the attorney general (laughs) to stop him from being taken to a hotel. I just don't see that happening. So the only choice is the courts, it seems, and that could, even under an expedited basis, could run for months and months, get us into the next election, and this is just going to be a protracted uh, battle of wills, essentially, between the the Democrats and the administration, as you see it? I think that's where we're headed with regard to the administration's intransigence. Uh But what that misses is just a truth, which is that there are no secrets in Washington. And we we, we sat around for the last six to eight weeks saying, you know, come on, if Mueller, you saw it on Fox News repeatedly, Mm -hmm. or you probably didn't because that's not your... um, entertainment diet oh no it is more than more than uh, you would think and more than i wish but yeah i'm so sorry man (laughs) yeah i appreciate Um, that (laughs) but the uh uh they said over and over and over if Mueller has a problem with what Barr's doing yeah wouldn't he be speaking up well he did (laughs) and the truth came out that report is not going to remain a secret the the uh trump administration could try as hard as it would like to keep it a secret but one way or the other, I think we're going to know a lot more about what's in that report before the election, whether it's through the courts or whether it's through the free press. Well, that may be true, um, but this administration seems to be setting a whole bunch of new precedents, including 
just a remarkable comment from Bill Barr at his Senate Judiciary Committee hearing on Wednesday. Ted Kahlo, uh, former general counsel of the U.S. House Judiciary Committee, stand by. I need to take a quick break here and I will come back uh, to get your thoughts on this remarkable legal theory put forward by the nation's top cop this week. I'm Brad Friedman. This is the Bradcast. Don't touch that dial. What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. At the Bradcast, we do our best to bring you accurate news and analysis on the issues that actually matter, and we do it all independently, without corporate or political influence. But we can't do it without you, now more than ever. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Now they're planning the crime of the century. Planning? I think we're seeing it play out right before us. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. I'm speaking with Ted Kahlo, 14-year veteran of the U.S. House Judiciary Committee, where he served as its general counsel for the last 10 years during the darkest uh, moments of the George W. Bush administration. Uh, I, I want to get your thoughts on this because this was kind of extraordinary uh, during his I think it was extraordinary. You'll correct me, Ted Kahlo, uh, during his uh, Senate Judiciary Committee hearing on Wednesday. Barr, Attorney General Barr, was responding to Senator Pat Leahy. He explained uh, his, to say the least, controversial view on executive power and obstruction outlining this theory that a president's interference in an investigation, including shutting it down entirely if he wants, cannot be obstruction of justice if it was a constitutionally authorized action like uh, a president is allowed to fire an FBI director and, I think most controversially here, um, if the president was doing so because he thought that the investigation was based on false Allegations, In other words, the president, on his own decision, has the right to shut down any investigation he wants into himself if he doesn't like it. Here, here's Barr's explanation of that theory, and I'll get your comments, Ted. In the situation of the president, who has constitutional authority to supervise proceedings, if, in fact, a proceeding was not well-founded, if it was a groundless proceeding, if it was based on false allegations, uh, the president does not have to sit there constitutionally and allow it to run its course. The president could terminate that proceeding and it would not be a corrupt intent because he was being falsely accused and he would be worried about the impact on his administration. That's important because most of the obstruction uh, claims that are being made here or, or episodes do involve the exercise of the president's constitutional authority. And we now know that he was being falsely accused. OK, so setting aside uh, the idea that the Constitution gives no authority to, to my knowledge, for a president to instruct his White House counsel to create a false false documents to cover up lies during an investigation into those lies or to pay off his personal lawyer as part of a conspiracy to cover up campaign finance felonies in paying hush money to a porn star just before an election. 
Uh, setting all of that aside, your thoughts on Barr's theory here that a president has the constitutional authority to simply uh, decide on his own when he's being falsely accused and just shut down any DOJ investigation if he feels like, as was asserted there from the nation's top law enforcement officer. I have no idea what legal basis there could be for asserting that the president has an unfettered ability to do that. I also think the hypothetical that Barr's articulating is ridiculous in another respect that you didn't mention. There was a crime here. There's a crime articulated in the Mueller report. There are many crimes. They were being committed by the Russians. Uh, and a president can't obstruct justice. The, the narrative that the Mueller report lays out is that the president uh, was afraid of that if the special counsel discovered all the Russian criming, <laughs> that it would make his uh, election look illegitimate, and therefore he was angry, uh-huh. and he was shutting it down. That is, by definition, a corrupt intent. You can obstruct justice trying to cover up someone else's crime. Uh, so I think the hypothetical itself is ridiculous, but I know of no legal authority for what the attorney general is saying, and it defies reason. Members of Congress are allowed, to, given the constitutional authority, to vote. Do they have the constitutional authority to take bribes for their votes? They don't. You, every uh, authority that a, um, is delegated to anyone in the Constitution has to be done consistent with their oath of office, and they can't abuse those powers they're given. I I don't know of any lawyer who could justify that argument. Well, the nation's top lawyer just did. Uh, And also, uh, setting aside the notion that he, uh, Barr, you know, states there that, oh, the president was falsely accused. But since the president obstructed the investigation, as far as we can tell, how do we know that the original charges are not true, as Barr seems to be simply taking for granted there? That's the point, right? Uh, I mean, that's what's so absurd about it is, isn't that the point of the obstructing to make it super hard to, to prove the crime? And <laughs> if criminal defendants were allowed to say, well, you didn't prove an underlying crime here, and I just did the obstructing because I thought, you know, there was nothing there, and see, you didn't prove it. You know, uh, that's the point of the obstructing. <laughs> uh, that's the whole, yeah. if, I, if I'm accused of tax evasion, and I take a torch to every financial record I have, and you can't prove the tax evasion, but you can prove that I destroyed all my financial records, do I say, hey, there's no crime there, so there's no obstruction? Yeah. It's absurd. Yeah, you do now. That's apparently the new rules. Okay. That's, uh, feel free. We'll let the defense bar know. Yeah, let uh, light it up. Uh, Ted, you spent uh, years as the uh, general counsel for the U.S. House Judiciary Committee uh, under during George W. Bush. I thought at that time what we were looking at was unprecedentedly troubling uh, with that. This seems... Even worse, do you share that opinion uh, as as I let you go here? <laughs> I think we it, it can't be understated that we're in a constitutional crisis, and uh, we're trying to respond to things that were we we never expected to occur from a president of the United States, and um, that makes it all very troubling and unpredictable. Worse than W. By far. 
Ted Kahlo, 14-year veteran of the U.S. House Judiciary Committee, uh, served as its general counsel for the last 10 years of those service, uh, years of that service. He has uh, since escaped, but maybe we'll pull him back in. Ted Kahlo, great talking to you, my friend. Hope you don't mind if we bother you again in the future. You have been very helpful in uh, helping us clarify and understand what the hell is going on here. Thanks, Brad. You bet. Thank you. You can find Ted and uh, harangue him on the Twitters if you like. He is TedWord23. Thank you, sir. Okay, we got to get out, um, but, uh, boy, a lot to dig in there. Indeed, too. and, and ch- rather chilling when he says that it's actually worse than anything we've had before. Yep. Worse than the Bush administration. Worse than, well, and that's one of the reasons I was yelling and screaming after the Bush administration, during the Obama administration. For accountability. For accountability, because otherwise not only will it be repeated, it will be made worse. And uh, clearly, well, as Ted Kahlo says, yeah, this is worse than W. And, you know, imagine all the laws that we're going to have to go back now and and reinterpret because the attorney general seems to be just reinterpreting laws on the fly. Um, That, uh, you know, new rules for obstruction. Who knew? So uh, let's gather those tax documents and start burning them. I think uh, that's probably a good idea. Um, All right. Anyway, we do have to get out. Thank you very much to uh, Ted Kahlo, of course. Thank you to Desi Doyen, our producer. And thanks to all of you who spend a portion of your day or night with us every day, hopefully, here on the Bradcast. If you missed any portion of today's show or any other, you can download it anytime for free at bradblog.com. While you're there, please help others enjoy it for free by stopping by bradblog.com slash donate to help us continue to do what we try to do. Those of you who have signed up lately for uh, subscriptions for any amount you like are particularly appreciated. Thank you for that. Bradblog.com slash donate. You can drop me email. I am bradcast at bradblog.com and you can harangue me on the Facebooks and the Twitters at simply the Bradblog. Okie dokie. That is it. Until we meet again, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world.